Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, the unscripted show that celebrates unsung heroes, myth busts historical lies, and rediscovers the forgotten stories that changed our world. I'm your host, Scott Rank. The story of women taking over the duties of their husbands in factories and homes during times of war is a familiar one. While they were deployed overseas to stop a foreign dictator from world conquest, they were placed in charge of their households. Before the war, this hypothetical wife depended on her husband's paycheck for all their material needs. Now, for the first time, she was solely in charge of the family's finances. She was also responsible for new duties, such as simple home repairs and overseeing improvement projects. Money was tight in these times, so before long, she rented out her home's empty rooms to lodgers and prepared them meals. The modest revenue was used to upgrade its furnishings and maybe add an additional room. Soon, the lodging business grew. To accommodate her growing clientele, the housewife started hiring support staff. Without realizing it, she'd suddenly become a manager. She now owned a business, and her business transformed into the equivalent of a small hotel and restaurant. To guard her capital, she purchased a gun, since the lodging was in an unsafe place. After a few lessons at the local range, she'd become a proficient markswoman. On one occasion, she was even forced to stop a criminal foolish enough to cross her doorpost. When her husband finally returned from the war, he expected to meet his meek housewife still caught up in her domestic duties. Instead, he encountered a savvy entrepreneur who had come to enjoy all the benefits of wealth creation and independence. She started to ask why she couldn't experience this condition earlier in her life. Soon, she encountered like-minded women who wanted similar social recognition. They organized within a few short years. These women started to make their voices heard across society. Now, this sounds like a story of women mobilizing in America and Europe between World War II and the 1960s. Well, this could be accurate, but it's actually a description of England in the 1400s. There, Margaret Paston of Norwich was a rich heiress who managed Keister Castle in Norfolk. Her husband was Sir John Paston, a lawyer who spent several months each year in London at the courts. Margaret supervised the vast estate. She organized the castle's defense, its brewery, bakery, and stables. She made medicine, watched over the sick, and even arranged the marriages of those living in her household. When, in 1488, political rival Lord Mullane attempted to claim a house on her lands by force, she readied the men-at-arms. Margaret wrote to her husband requesting crossbows, arrows, and poleaxes. She organized the defense against 1,000 armed men who had entered her fortified residence with battering rams. Margaret was carried off and later returned when the family dispute was resolved, but she'd shown herself to be of rather tough metal. Now, this story isn't what most people expect when they think of women in the Middle Ages. 
The image that springs to mind is a damsel in distress who sits in a high tower wearing a traffic cone for a hat and who waits for a knight to rescue her from her captors. Once freed by this knight, she's shoved into a forced marriage, breeds sons for her husband, and keeps her mouth shut in public. If not, she's scorned by the village for the sin of being a woman that has an opinion. And if she continues in her mortal sin, the male priest consent to have her burned at the stake as a witch because that's what people did in the Middle Ages. If our hypothetical woman was of lower social standing or a peasant in this imaginary medieval world, then she had absolutely no legal rights. Other community members regarded her much as they did the livestock. It was a piece of property that was bought and sold. If she were beaten, enslaved, tortured, or killed, then kings and church leaders turned a blind eye. They considered her at best a necessary component for procreation, and at worst a tool of the devil and a signpost on the road to damnation. Now this view, although popular, is not true. That's because we have too many powerful women in the Middle Ages to serve as a counterexample. I mentioned Margaret, but she was only a local power holder. But if we consider Empress Theodora of the Byzantine Empire, Athelfled of the Mercians in what is now England, or Eleanor of Aquitaine, these are some of the most powerful rulers in the Middle Ages, whether male or female. And despite those who held political power, you have saints like Catherine of Siena, who had enormous religious and soft power and was basically responsible for moving the papacy from France back to Italy. Or Isabella of Castile and Leon, who ruled with Ferdinand and was responsible for the colonization of the New World. Elizabeth of Tudor, who turned England into a global power. Or Qusem Sultan, arguably one of the most powerful rulers in the history of the Ottoman Empire, when women had no legal right to be sultan. In the modern era, in 2016, when America almost had its first female president, and when Western nations still make a big deal out of having their first prime minister and talking about quotas to have more women in high politics, women were ruling nations hundreds or even thousands of years ago. In light of this, in this episode, I'm going to be looking at some of the most powerful women in the Middle Ages. Specifically, I'll look at Empress Theodora, Athelflaed of the Mercians and Eleanor of Aquitaine. And then in the next episode, I'll look at Catherine of Siena, Isabella of Castile-Leon, Elizabeth of Tudor, and Cosem Sultan. But if these women existed, why do we still have this image of women in the Middle Ages having absolutely no rights? Let me address that, and then we'll get into the biographies of these specific characters. Ideas about women having no rights in the Middle Ages are dominant, but they're not based on historical fact. They have to do more with the ideology of historians at the time they crafted these narratives about the past. The romantic depictions of medieval women, knights, and chivalry, and jousting tournaments come from the period of Romanticism, which originated in modern Western Europe in the early 19th century. Medieval costumes and symbols became all the rage at this time. German emperors dressed up in such clothing at public balls. Ludwig II of Bavaria built his famous fairy tale castle at Neuschwanstein in 1868, which is the direct inspiration for the iconic castle at Disney World. These accoutrements of medieval life can be seen today at events organized by the Society for Creative Anachronism. In Victorian England, the ruling class held reenactments of medieval tournaments. They donned their best imitation of medieval dress at royal and aristocratic masquerades and balls. Jousting tournaments were held. And the idea of a passive lady-in-waiting that existed throughout the Middle Ages solidified in the public consciousness, 
even if it was a modern fiction. This mythical woman wore a medieval gown, but she had all the virtues of a Victorian lady who espoused sexual restraint, was kept in idle luxury, and held a strict social code of conduct. As a result, the concept of a real medieval woman is misunderstood because history of this era has largely been filtered through Victorian ideals. This was a time in which British females lacked suffrage rights or the ability to own property. It's from this time that the image of a woman wearing a traffic cone hat while sitting wistfully by a window emerged. But there's a second misconception of medieval women that's equally wrong, and this springs from more modern times. And it comes from committing one of the simplest mistakes when studying history, and that's dividing characters into camps of heroes and villains, and imagining that the heroes are basically modern people trapped in the past, and if it were up to them, they would act exactly the way that we do today. So the heroes are thought to be visionaries that could see the 21st century from their lofty vantage points in history, and they did their best to nudge society in this direction, and were often punished for their foresight. They dreamed of equal rights, constitutional democracy, universal suffrage, and fair wage laws for women. Villains, instead, are thought to want to inhibit reform, human rights, and the inevitable march of progress. As these villains, whether they were kings or barons or whomever, they sat in castles and twirled their mustaches and schemed of keeping society in its backward state and dragging it even further in the past and hoped to deny women their rights out of pure misogyny. And they're thought to be the forefathers of today's enemies of civilization, whether jihadists in the Middle East or fundamentalists in the West. As a result, some revisionist historians, in an attempt to give medieval women a stronger voice, have essentially turned the most notable women of this era into 21st century feminists. So Joan of Arc is credited with challenging the gender norms of her era by wearing men's armor into combat and cutting her hair short. Or... Catherine of Siena is imagined to have challenged the patriarchal world of the Catholic Church by sending letters of rebuke to the Pope. It's an idea that they're sort of proto-feminists and the predecessors of suffragists like Susan B. Anthony or Carrie Chapman Catt. It's like they're part of a long, unbroken chain that brought women from their lowly positions in the Middle Ages to their current position in the 21st century. It's this idea that all powerful females of the past were truly modern women, but in medieval garb. And if they only had the means, then they would have eliminated legal and social gender distinctions in society. But we don't see these sentiments in any of the accounts in these women's lives. None of the women that I'm going to look at really challenged the idea of a patriarchal world. Catherine of Siena may have rebuked popes, but she never called on them to install female priests or bishops. Joan of Arc may have dressed as a man in combat, but there was no such thing as female combat armor at the time, and she preferred to wear a dress while in prison and forbade other women from joining her in battle. She believed that her circumstances were unique since she had been directly called by God. Not even the most powerful queens in Europe desired to produce legislation to make the sexes completely equal before the law. This was true among rulers such as Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was among the richest landholders in medieval Europe. It was also true with Queen Elizabeth, commanded entire armies and ordered men to their death by the thousands. Many of these rulers acquiesced to a political system in which they were forced to rule through a male relative, such as the Ottoman Kisem Sultan. So we don't want to look at these women through an anachronistic lens, 
But despite none of them having modern ideals, it doesn't take away from the extraordinary accomplishments. Even though they didn't seek to upend the male-dominated world in which they lived, it's clear that they were not damsels in distress. Lady Athelfled personally led armies into direct combat with Vikings and saved England from foreign invasions. Empress Theodora kept the Byzantine Empire from falling apart during wide-scale rioting and stopped her husband and his council from fleeing Constantinople during the worst of the riots. Catherine of Siena almost single-handedly restored the papacy to Rome and was one of the few people who could negotiate with all sides in the divisive and brutal world of Italian politics. So we're going to look at how these women managed to acquire power at a time when women were thought to not hold any, what made their accomplishments so notable, and the impact they had on their societies after their deaths. And we'll also describe the historical background of the different societies of these women, their cultures, and what about it helped or hindered their rise. Particularly their resilience to accomplish extraordinary things, even if society put enormous constraints on them. So let's start off with our first figure, the very beginning of the Middle Ages, or the late antique world, depending on how you divide these time periods, and that is Empress Theodora, who lived from 500 to 548. Empress Theodora was one part of a husband and wife power couple. So that alone makes it hard for her life not to be captivating. She and her husband, Emperor Justinian, fall in the pantheon of Mark Antony and Cleopatra, Ferdinand Isabella, or Bill and Hillary Clinton. The prospect of two ambitious leaders whose personal relationship and jealousies are in danger of spilling into state policy makes for riveting character studies. But she'd be riveting on her own, even if she weren't married to Justinian. She's nearly as famous as her husband, and quite a feat considering that he ruled the empire at the peak of its power and influence. She's famous for coming from humble origins and rising to the second highest position in the empire. Her life story is also a strong rebuke to those that argue women from lower social levels had no rights or possibilities of upward mobility in the early Middle Ages. And they were very lowly origins. According to Procopius's secret history, which you have to take with a massive grain of salt, because some people think it's more of a polemic against Theodore and Justinian. Anyway, according to it, which was written shortly after Theodore's death, the empress-to-be started her career performing in the circus, which was the ancient equivalent of being a Vegas showgirl and part-time prostitute. She gained fame for performing lewd acts on stage. According to legend, Theodora danced with nothing more than a ribbon and even allowed geese to peck out grain from a, well, certain part of her midsection. Procopius, who's probably writing with a furrowed brow at this point, said that she seemed to glory in the performance with no shame. For she was not only impudent herself, but endeavored to make everyone else as audacious. This was his indirect way of saying that Theodora took on many lovers all at the same time. He writes that she even wished that nature had endowed her with the biological ability to service even more men at once. Procopius was a fierce anti-Justinian partisan, and his account is far more of a polemic against the empress than historical truth. But it does suggest his displeasure that a woman of such a humble background was able to wield so much power. Theodora was born in 500 to Acacius, a bearkeeper of the Hippodrome of Constantinople, which was close to the imperial palace. And it was partially a coliseum, partially an entertainment district, partially an ongoing circus. Her mother was a dancer and actress, and her sister, Kamito, took up these careers as well. Acacius died when she was five, and her new father-in-law could not support the family. 
So her mother committed Theodora and her two sisters to Constantinople's Hippodrome after she formally requested a job for their new stepfather. She gave the girls basic instruction in dance to find jobs as entertainers. Young Theodora was immediately thrown into life among the city's most disorderly citizens. At the time, the imperial capital was hardly more civilized than ancient Rome, even though it exchanged paganism for Christianity centuries earlier. The city was broken off into factions that resembled English football hooligans, the Greens and the Blues, two groups that descended from Roman chariot racer teams. By the 6th century, they had evolved into early political parties that stood for different branches of Christian theology. However, they were still as violent as their gladiator enthusiast forefathers and often resorted to bloody rioting. The Blues were the upper class that stood for the Chalcedonian belief that Christ had a human and divine nature. The Greens were the Workers' Party and believed in monophysitism, a heresy at the time, that said Christ had only one nature and was not simultaneously human and divine. This was a crucible that young Theodora grew up in. But despite her background, she became an avid Blue since they offered work to her father-in-law when the Greens ignored their plight. By age 15, she had worked her way up to an acting star in the Hippodrome, which was significant since the complex could hold 30,000 and offered all sorts of licit and illicit entertainment. Like I said, she was sort of a Vegas showgirl, and the Hippodrome was the dark underbelly of Constantinople, the city's red-light district. As a result, attaining notoriety as an actress in such a place required a female to debase herself in many ways. Kamito, her sister, took up prostitution first, and Theodora soon followed. The vocational transition wasn't a significant one at this time. The two words, actress and prostitute, were nearly synonymous, and the two girls soon made a name for themselves in both fields. For both young women, they soon saw that an upward career path was outside of the Hippodrome and in the arms of powerful politicians. Theodora was a mistress to the Syrian official Hesabolas at 16, remaining with him for four years in the Libyan Pentapolis, where he served as governor. She was mistreated by him and then abandoned while he returned to Constantinople. Theodora then settled in the Egyptian port city of Alexandria, a major Christian center and international commercial hub. There, she had a religious awakening when she met Patriarch Timothy, a devout monophysite. One account says she also received theological instruction from Severus, Patriarch of Antioch, who had fled monophysite persecution. This education came to impact the empire when she was crowned empress years later. She returned to Constantinople at the age of 22, renouncing her old life and turning to the trade of a wool spinner. As luck would have it, she worked near the royal palace and caught the attention of young Justinian, next in line to the Byzantine throne, which was, at the time, held by his uncle Justin I. He was likely captivated by her looks and engaging intelligence. Edward Gibbon, the 18th century historian, describes Theodora's striking beauty in the following way. Her features were delicate and regular. Her complexion, though somewhat pale, was tinged with a natural color. Every sensation was instantly expressed by the vivacity of her eyes. Her easy motions displayed the graces of a small but elegant figure, and either love or adulation might proclaim that painting and poetry were incapable of delineating the matchless excellence of her form. She quickly won Justinian's heart and became his concubine as he pampered her with gifts from across the empire. Justinian decided to make her his wife, but Roman law forbade a senator from marrying one from a debased profession such as the theater. Emperor Justin's wife, Euphemia, 
outright rejected having a prostitute as a niece, leaving Justinian to wait for the death of the empress in 525. At this point, the nuptial prohibition was lifted, and the two wed. Following their marriage, Justinian donned the imperial purple at his royal coronation. The Patriarch of Constantinople placed the royal diadem on the heads of the emperor and the empress, and the former prostitute was now celebrated by Byzantium's bishops, magistrates, and generals. Theodora entered the imperial palace in 527 during a time of tremendous political and legal reform in Byzantium that was instituted by Justinian. He was a pivotal figure that bridged the world of antiquity and the early medieval world. He reacquired Roman lands in Europe that were lost a century ago to Vandal and Ostrogothic invasions. Once again, the Roman Empire stretched out to the Atlantic Ocean, bringing in vast amounts of tribute from the reconquered territory. Justinian also rewrote the Roman law, the Corpus Juris Civilis. It's still the basis of civil law in many of the empire's descendant states. And in the middle of this rapidly ascending empire and the implementation of these far-reaching changes was an empress whose husband viewed her as an equal and sought her advice frequently. All those expensive Byzantine wars gave Theodora the first opportunity to truly demonstrate her power. To raise funds for such massive expeditions, Justinian's finance minister, John of Cappadocia, introduced 26 new taxes, many of which fell on the wealthy. Anger at the imperial center for higher taxes merged with already volatile social conditions after Justinian had harshly reacted to fighting between the Greens and the Blues in the capital. The Greens resented being rebuffed by the couple. The Blues, who were generally liked by Justinian and Theodora, believed their favor had been withdrawn. They had managed to earn the scorn of both sides. At the next chariot race at the Hippodrome, the two factions shouted, Nika, Nika, win, win, normally a cheer for their favorite charioteer, in defiance of the government. Soon, they poured into Constantinople's inner city with the threat of burning it down. They torched buildings of the capital, including the church in which the royal couple was wed. The mob even proclaimed a new emperor, Hypatius, the nephew of the former emperor Anastasius I. Justinian and his officials prepared to flee for their lives from the palace. As they gathered their possessions, according to some accounts, one figure stood between them and the exit. It was the former circus performer. Theodora rebuked them for their cowardice and admonished them to hold their ground. She gave an impassioned speech concerning the virtues of fighting to maintain power rather than living as an exile. She said, If you, my lord, wish to save your skin, you will have no difficulty in doing so. We are rich, there is the sea, and there too are our ships. But consider first whether, when you reach safety, you will regret that you did not choose death in preference. As for me, I stand by the ancient saying, the purple is a noblest winding sheet, and purple was a royal imperial color of Byzantium. The emperor gathered his courage from her words and ordered his trusted officers Belisarius and Mundus to attack the demonstrators. They made swift work of them. Their Thracian and Gothic troops assaulted the Hippodrome and killed over 30,000, including the challenger to the throne, Hypatius, at Theodora's insistence. This number equaled 10% of the city's population and was larger than the medieval populations of London, France, or Rome at the time. Justinian and Theodorus were victorious in their battle, but only because of the empress's courage and confidence in her husband's ability to overcome the rioters. Had she not done so, Justinian would most likely have been overthrown. With the revolt put down, Theodora and Justinian kept their high taxes in place and used the revenue to build up Constantinople. 
through their urban planning and architectural patronage, the city reached its full imperial splendor. It remained the envy of the medieval world for centuries. Western Europeans who traveled to the Byzantine capital were shocked by its splendor because their home cities were little more than a castle and cathedral surrounded by thatch-roof cottages. Historians later describe Constantinople as the still-beating heart of antiquity in the Middle Ages. The most magnificent of these works was the Hagia Sophia Church, completed in 537. The physicist Isidore of Miltius and mathematician Anthemius of Tralles were chief architects. Materials were brought from all over the world. Hellenistic columns from the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus, large stones from Egypt, green marble from Thessaly, and yellow stones from Syria. Over 10,000 workers were employed to construct the building, which had a massive dome. It was the largest church in the world, and remained so for nearly a thousand years, until St. Peter's Basilica bested it. Justinian, upon walking to the church, was rumored to have said, O Solomon, I have surpassed thee. Spectators who entered it were no less awestruck and proclaimed that it was a location where heaven and earth met. Theodora commissioned many other works, including aqueducts, bridges, and 25 churches, but she didn't deprive herself of personal splendor. This was perhaps a way to make up for her simple youth. She was heavily adorned with Byzantine jewelry. This style continued the Greco-Roman traditions, but was influenced by Eastern style. It contained pearls, a variety of precious gems, and enamel. Her clothing consisted of richly colored fabrics, often of royal purple. She wore rich furs, ornate costume jewelry, and ankle-skimming dresses. She spent much of the year in palaces and gardens along the Bosphorus coast with her favorite female servants and eunuchs. She also visited the local hot springs and availed herself to all forms of beauty treatment used by the Roman noblewomen. Theodora was not afraid to wield power, which she did with gusto whenever an official entered her antechamber. According to Edward Gibbon, they had to kiss her feet and carefully follow all rules of royal decorum. If not, they were thrown in prison or exiled. Her strong control may have been exaggerated, but she and her husband clearly demonstrated their dominance over a bureaucracy that they suspected of corruption. For better or for worse, this power model of the emperor and the empress created a complex system of court rituals, and this is the reason that today we describe something that's unnecessarily cumbersome and full of confusing rules as being Byzantine. But Theodora didn't forget the difficulties she experienced as a youth, nor was she indifferent to the outcasts of Constantinople like she once was. She and her husband established a number of pious and charitable foundations. She's most well known for establishing a benevolent institution for women that, like her, had been compelled to enter prostitution. Procopius writes that Theodora converted a palace on the Asian shore of the Bosphorus Strait to a spacious monastery that could house 500 women. Those who took up holy orders were offered a rare chance to escape from a profession that engulfed its practitioners throughout much of the ancient world, much as it does today. Some reports claimed a number of women were not so grateful to be placed in confinement, and they threw themselves into the sea to escape their restrictive new life. This last detail, however, was likely a fictional statement made up by the chronicler to demonstrate that Theodora was heavy-handed and aggressive, even in her charity. The empress promoted laws that strengthened a woman's position in the event of a divorce, giving an easier path to owning property and even bringing lawsuits against men. The death penalty was brought against rape, and she forbade abandonment of unwanted infants. Similar legal protection for women did not enter many European states until the Renaissance and were absent in such places as Victorian England. 
The Empress also expressed an independent religious will from her husband, who was a Chalcedonian, while she was a monophysite. She founded a monastery that provided refuge for renegade figures, such as Severus and Anthemus, from her younger days. Legend has it that the latter hid in Theodora's quarters for 12 years following excommunication. Both Theodora and Justinian even sent competing missionaries to southern Egypt to convert the inhabitants to their respective beliefs. The ruler of this region accepted Theodora's emissary as he feared the wrath of the empress more than the emperor. Theodora came down with what many chroniclers believe to be cancer and died in June 548 at the age of 48. Justinian reportedly wept bitterly at her funeral. Theodora was buried in the Church of the Holy Apostle in Constantinople, one of the many churches which she and Justinian had been responsible for building during their reign. The influence on her husband remained long after her death. He lived nearly 20 more years but never remarried. Justinian also kept his promise to protect a small monophysite community of refugees on the Marmara Sea. A posthumous event perfectly illustrates Theodora's rise to power from a lowly circus performer. Following her death, the city of Olbia in modern-day Libya renamed itself Theodorius in her honor. It was located on the same lands that decades before was a site in which a general with whom she was having an affair abandoned her. Residents of this coastal state likely had little memory of the powerful empress as a frightened mistress. If anyone did, they would have scarcely been able to guess the impact she would one day have on the medieval world. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The second person I want to look at is probably the least known amongst powerful medieval women, but I think one of the most interesting. And that is Lady Athelfled of the Mercians, who lived from 872 to 918. Her story is literally one of epic proportions. She led England's two southern kingdoms against the Danish Vikings. She crushed their armies due to her bravery and tactical brilliance and helped create a united England. When J.R.R. Tolkien was a professor of Anglo-Saxon studies at Oxford University, he likely used her as an inspiration for Eowyn, the shield maiden of Rohan in The Lord of the Rings. If so, Tolkien could not have paid a higher compliment to a historical figure. Tolkien enthusiasts will know that it was Eowyn who slew the Lord of the Nazgul, among the fiercest enemies in the series. Other similarities between the two women are numerous. Both faced down terrifying enemies at a time of doom. Both led battle charges on horseback into pitched battle. And both left behind a better society than the one they ruled. Athelflaed came to power at a highly unstable period for England. Roman legions had completely withdrawn from the islands in 410. Saxons overran it, followed by Germanic migrants such as the Anglos and Jutes. In 793, the Northmen, or Vikings, arrived from Scandinavia and began raiding the coastline. In 866, a huge Danish force arrived by ship and put Anglo-Saxon kings to the sword, establishing their rule over large parts of the island. Historians consider this time a dark age for England, dark in the sense that so few sources survive 
and knowledge about this period is something like a black hole. Literacy was practically non-existent, and there were too few monasteries around to train the scribes that would copy and preserve manuscripts. This was due to society being unable to rebuild itself due to endless invasions. These foreign invaders were not great assistants when all the inhabitants wanted to do was cultivate their land, rebuild a school or two, and possibly eke out a new book once a decade. This was a time of persistent danger, and only an epic work as morose as Beowulf properly captures its gloominess. But Athelflaed, an Anglo-Saxon ruler, proved a resolve in the face of these invaders and soon became one of their worst enemies. Athelflaed was born in 870, and she was the oldest child of King Alfred the Great of Wessex and Queen Ellswith. Her younger siblings included two brothers, Edward the Elder and Athelward, and two sisters, Athelfrith, Countess of Flanders, and Athelgiva, Abbess of Shaftesbury. Her father was a widely respected commander who won a battle in Eddington against the Vikings in 862, freeing Western Mercia from their control. Following this victory, he worked to codify laws, reinforce the kingdom through fortifications, which were manned year-round, with half his people on guard duty and the other half tending to the harvest. Along with governing, Alfred gave his daughter military instruction that was usually only reserved for men. He taught Athelflaed the use of weapons, military strategy, and the forming of legal and economic policies. She learned at the king's side, watching him assemble a navy, collect taxes, promote trade, and protect the church. Alfred set about to consolidate the unconquered parts of England, and to further these plans, he used his young daughter. Athelred, the leader of the Midland realm of Mercia, submitted to King Alfred to combine their forces against the Vikings. Alfred cemented the alliance by giving Athelflaed, 16 years old at this time, to him in marriage in 884. Alfred was quite serious about this marriage because her dowry to Athelred consisted of the entire city of London. Athelflaed proved to be a tough bride even before they exchanged nuptials. During the journey from Wessex to Mercia, Athelflaed and her wedding party were attacked by Vikings. The assault was likely done to prevent an alliance between Wessex and Mercia. Whatever the reason, the Vikings suffered the fierce wrath of interfering with a bride while preparing for her wedding. And her military upbringing did not leave her unprepared during the surprise attack. She fought alongside her bodyguards, protecting the maids in dowry. When the battle turned against them, Athelflaed and her men retreated into a castle, which by then most of her tenants had been killed and her dowry looted. Despite being outnumbered, they eventually struck down every last one of their assailants. Only she, her maidservant, and a bodyguard survived. Athelred and Athelfled appear side by side in the sources for the next 25 years, traveling throughout England and strengthening their war-torn lands. This demonstrates that even in her teen years, she was an active ruler of the South and Midland realms. Mercia Mint was built in Gloucester and began turning out coins by 899. They constructed a palace outside the city walls and inhabited it there. They also founded the Church of St. Paul in Gloucester, despite its exposure to Viking raids. As she ruled with her husband, Athelflaed positioned her siblings and children for political power in order to continue the family dynasty and complete her father's vision of a unified kingdom. Their only daughter was Alfwin, born in 888. Like her mother, she was taught military strategy from a young age, reportedly executing the arts of war as well as any man. Some scholars argue that Athelflaed purposely kept her daughter from marriage so that there would be no heir to the Mercian throne, and the crown would go automatically to Athelflaed's brother, Edward. 
Yet he may have recognized that his sister was a stronger ruler between the two of them. In 895, he sent his son, Athelstan, to her court for education. He was the heir apparent and therefore required to be trained in politics, diplomacy, and warfare. After her father's death in 899 and her husband coming down with a debilitating disease in 902, Athelflaed became ruler of Mercia in all but name. As Edward spread rule to Wessex in East Anglia, she consolidated power in her domain. She was responsible for repulsing Norse settlers from Chester in 905, one of the most famous battles during this period due to the city's strategic and commercial significance as a port. When Athelflaed heard of the Norse uprising and plans for attack, she rushed to Chester and stationed her soldiers outside the city walls. Her plan was for the soldiers to fight briefly with the Vikings and then feign retreat into the gates, which were conveniently left open for the invaders. When the Vikings entered, the gates swung shut and locked behind them. They immediately knew that they had ridden into a trap. The army hiding inside pounced. With sword in hand, Athelflaed and her soldiers, along with the townspeople, slaughtered them. As she consolidated her rule, she worked with Edward to unite England's kingdoms. They knew through their decades of battling foreign invaders that a fragmented island could not continually repulse the Vikings. She assisted with their raid of East Anglia and rebuilt Gloucester, ruling in her husband's stead. Although his name was used in official transactions and much correspondence, it was Athelflaed who made the final administrative decisions concerning the kingdom. She was also the one who entered an alliance with the Scots and the Welsh and supported the Danes against the Norwegians. Her husband had been ill for a decade and eventually died in 911. She became the sole ruler, and the scribes conferred the title upon her, the Lady of the Mercians. It was no ordinary matter for her to claim rulership, as she was the first Anglo-Saxon queen in history to rule without the fig leaf of regency or a king by her side. It was an exceptional honor granted to her by the aristocrats, who knew that she had essentially ran the realm for 10 years and possessed unique abilities to govern due to her unusual upbringing. Furthermore, Mercia's nobles preferred a domestic queen to a foreign king from Wessex. Making good on the trust conferred to her, she quickly set out to consolidate power. Athelflaed built nine forts in the next decade to keep out the Danes and Welsh and protect her realm against raiding armies. The forts were in Bridgenorth, Stafford and Tamworth, Edisbury and Warwick, and Sherbury and Runcorn. During her rule, she led armies in three important battles and won them all. In 915, she repelled a Viking force that landed in Bristol Channel and attacked Wales. In 916, she invaded Wales and Pose in response to the murder of an English abbot. In 917, she recaptured Derby from the Danes. As her brother conquered the Midlands, Essex, and East Anglia from the Danes, the armies of Leicester and York surrendered to her rather than face the Anglo-Saxon on the battlefield. Part of the reason for their surrender may have been due to the Danes fearing an invasion of the Norse from Ireland and preferring submission to a woman's rule over a slaughter from the east. But her martial abilities certainly played a factor. Athelflaed's influence extended beyond Mercia's borders. Edward consulted her for tactical advice on many occasions because he thought of her as the better battle commander. She also helped build up England's transportation infrastructure. Many of the roads had fallen apart in recent centuries following the retreat of the Roman Empire. Athelflaed reclaimed some of its transportation system. She oversaw the rebuilding of Gloucester's Roman roads, which can still be seen today and can be crossed in the city center. 
other surviving structures from her reign, including the Gloucester Priory and the Gloucester Cathedral. In 918, Athelflaed died from unknown causes. It may have been that she was injured in battle and died from a subsequent infection. Perhaps she fell to the plague, malaria, or any number of other diseases at the time. Whatever the cause, it was exceptionally poor timing. She was on the verge of negotiating a treaty with York, in which the latter would pledge its allegiance to her. If successful, it would have united England for the first time since the 7th century. The events that followed her death were a testimony to Athelflaed's remarkable life. She was succeeded on the throne by her daughter, Alfwyn, who had been serving as co-ruler with her mother for years. It was the first instance of female-to-female royal succession in Europe, and wasn't repeated for 600 years, when Lady Jane Grey was followed by Mary in 1553, and then Elizabeth I in 1558. This female succession was not a decision that the Mercian aristocracy favored, but much like the dilemma of 9-11, they preferred this option over installing a foreign ruler. Her reign, unfortunately, didn't last long. Edward marched into Mercia six months later and took command of his sister's domains, perhaps out of fear that these lands were drifting away from Wessex. Unification of England was now within reach. The Lady of Mercia's life work was completed by her nephew, Athelstan, who was raised at her court and finally succeeded in uniting the kingdoms in 927. He ruled the United England until his death in 939. Athelflaed was the most dominant female monarch in England until Queen Elizabeth's reign six centuries later, and Elizabeth never got her hands dirty in direct combat like her predecessor. She's remembered for her intellect, leadership, courage, and kindness, most notably by her adversaries. Even in the Middle Ages, her deeds were lionized by poets and chroniclers. Since they didn't have a good way to compliment a powerful female soldier in those days, they did her best and praised her as being brave and almost masculine. According to Alex Burgart, the 12th century historian, William of Malmesbury, called her a most powerful man-like woman. This praise doesn't involve a very feminine image, but it was a comment on her bravery rather than any androgynous physical attributes. Henry of Huntington went one step further with his pangyric to the Anglo-Saxon queen. Some have thought and said that if she had not been suddenly snatched away by death, she would have surpassed the most valiant of men. Now let's move on to someone else, and this person probably holds the title for most powerful woman in the Middle Ages. If you had to pick one person, I think Eleanor of Aquitaine, who lived from 1122 to 1204, would take the prize. She's a really good rebuttal to the idea that women in the Middle Ages had absolutely no power. There was a book I came across about a year or two ago. I can't remember its name, but it was historical fiction about a European that goes to Mongolia in the 1200s and This European is surprised to see all the rights that women enjoy in the Mongolian Empire compared to the rights that women in the Middle Ages did not enjoy. And the whole issue of rights of women in the Mongolian Empire is a completely different discussion. And it's true in some ways, it's not true in other ways. But the author, I think, really didn't do a lot of research to see what rights women actually did have. And one could say that the rights between men and women were partially based on gender. Yes, that's true but also they were based on class. Eleanor of Aquitaine would have definitely more rights than a peasant man, and you'll see why here in a second. Eleanor of Aquitaine was a queen who ruled over France and then England. 
She served as regent during both of her husband's absences in foreign wars and crusades and diplomatic missions. She was a vigorous patron of the arts and came to define medieval court culture as it's imagined today. Her throne room had a troubadour in one corner and a poet in the other. Eleanor also had a significant impact on the Second Crusade. Through her financial backing and artistic styling, she added panache to what could have been a drab military affair. Her flair for the dramatic also earned her enemies, who considered her to be acting frivolously during a religious war. Her actions during the Second Crusade caused the Pope to release a papal edict, which he expressly forbade women to join the next crusade. As a result, historians have given a somewhat unflattering account of her very fascinating life. Eleanor was born between 1122 and 1124. Her father was William X, the Duke of Aquitaine, and her mother, Aenor de Chatelleral. She was given a broad education and became literate, an uncommon achievement for females at the time, or really anyone. She grew up in the extravagant court of Poitiers, where she was rarely disciplined and always admired. She was extroverted, intelligent, beautiful, and strong-willed, and Eleanor became the Duchess of Aquitaine as she was entering her teens, giving her control of the largest duchy in France. As a result, she was viewed as the most eligible heiress in Europe and had suitors lined up to claim her hand in marriage. Eleanor's suitors also probably didn't complain about her appearance. Contemporary sources praised her beauty. The troubadour, Bernard de Ventadour, called her gracious, lovely, the embodiment of charm, with lovely eyes and noble countenance. Now, somebody paid to flatter her probably wouldn't have said that she was ugly, but if that were the case, he simply could have avoided mention of her physical appearance or used more neutral language, but he didn't. Eleanor's father was concerned that she would be kidnapped after his death and held for ransom. For this reason, he named King Louis VI of France her guardian in his will, giving her the protection she needed until her marriage. The French monarch was overjoyed to be Eleanor's guardian and all the estates it entailed. The king began to make plans for her to marry his son and heir, Prince Louis. His designs for imperial power were so lacking a pretense that within hours of being informed of the death of Eleanor's father, he arranged for her marriage to his 16-year-old son, clear example of how medieval dynastic succession laws often stripped royal marriages of romance and made them purely a legal matter. The couple was married on July 25th, 1137, in the Cathedral of St. Andre. Shortly after the wedding, King Louis VI died, and his son became King Louis VII. The teenager, described as quiet and timid, was not ready to govern his kingdom. He handed many of his responsibilities over to his father's advisors. Eleanor, however, although also lacking in experience, had no such reservations about exercising her power as queen. She attended council meetings and frequently clashed with Louis' advisors. They would have likely ignored her completely, but a stipulation in Louis and Eleanor's marriage contract stated that she retained control of Aquitaine and therefore still retained significant power. Because Aquitaine was such an important duchy, she was like a huge shareholder at a board meeting. The two young royals and their factions soon came to loggerheads. As a result, their marriage was not a happy one, as would be expected if two teenagers were wed and both given far more power than their maturity could handle. Compounded with difficulties stemming from political differences, Eleanor was bored with Paris. At the time, it had a population of little more than 10,000, 
it was a rustic backwater version of its modern-day equivalent. One wanted glamour and international exuberance. You had to go to the growing Italian merchant city-states on the Mediterranean. Better yet, go to the Near East. Go to cities in Byzantium. That's where the real wealth and power was. And the status of Paris was true of nearly all cities in Europe, except for a few exceptions on the Italian peninsula. Eleanor did her best to invigorate her court by introducing a number of customs from Aquitaine, such as decorative tapestries, large fireplaces, and better sunlit architecture for the castle's interior. Eleanor also disliked what she viewed as her husband's excessive piety. He wore the drab cosset that made others assume he had taken holy orders. He looked like a monk, basically. She preferred extravagant gowns and dresses to suit each particular occasion. Eleanor once complained that she thought he was marrying a man, but it turned out she had wed a monk. She was exasperated by her timid, sweet-tempered husband, particularly since he expected a subordinate queen as dull as him. A chance for the royal couple to sort out their differences away from home presented itself in the form of the Second Crusade. This military mission was the sequel to the First Crusade, in which European knights and foot soldiers successfully conquered Jerusalem in 1099 and set up a kingdom in Jerusalem and also nearby territories in Edessa, Antioch, and Tripoli. Their success was short-lived. In response, Selchuk and Fatimid forces regrouped and began to attack Christian outposts in the Holy Land. They first took Edessa in 1144. Pope Eugenius III issued a call for the Second Crusade, to push the Muslim forces back and prevent other crusader states from falling. When King Louis decided to take up the cross and travel to the Holy Land, Eleanor was determined to go with him. At the age of 19, she knelt down and gave an oath to take up the crusade, following a sermon given by Bernard of Clairvaux. She pledged thousands of her vassals for the expedition. There's some indication that she'd been in communication with her uncle Raymond before swearing to join the crusade, which may have had some influence over her decision. Raymond was the king in Antioch on the Mediterranean coast in what is today modern-day Turkey and one of the Crusader kingdoms, and he was in frequent contact with the French court, seeking French protection for his country. In preparing for the crusade, Eleanor made plans to be accompanied by 1,000 knights and 300 ladies, the latter of whom intended to go and tend to the wounded. Of course, they wouldn't have just been her personal retinue, but would have joined in military efforts or been part of the support staff. The presence of her ladies and wagons of female servants, along with their purely decorative lances and armor, elicited scorn of other crusaders. They considered such extravagant spending inappropriate on a holy crusade, particularly on such a difficult journey where even food and water were scarce. At best, it was a distraction, and at worst, it was a safety threat. One chronicler claims that she took a group of minstrels and troubadours with her who were out of place on the expedition, and he says that she led them while wearing boots embroidered in gold. This earned her the ironic moniker, the lady with the golden feet. According to one legend, and this is really dubious, Eleanor and her ladies dressed as Amazons during the Second Crusade, owing to her love of Greek legends about the warrior women's conquests. But this account is almost definitely an exaggeration of an exasperated writer who is annoyed with the queen's excess. But this apocryphal legend of her interest in extravagant fashion does have an element of truth. She introduced new forms of dress, 
from the Middle East to France and England following her return to Europe, making a contribution to the increasing interactions between the two cultures after the Crusades. Eleanor and the Crusading forces took the overland route to Jerusalem and made their way to Constantinople. The French Crusaders were amazed at the riches they saw in the Byzantine capital, and Eleanor was enamored with the art and culture on display, a lot of the grandeur still left over from Theodora's times. However, once they exited the imperial city and crossed over the Bosphorus Strait into Seljuk Turkish-held territory, she saw that the crusades of gallant deeds that existed in song and poetry in Europe gave way to the grim reality of a dangerous military expedition through hostile conditions. Upon leaving Constantinople, the crusaders made their way through enemy territory, where they were attacked by a Turkish army. These attacks, in combination with bad weather, almost destroyed the crusaders. Those who survived the attacks finally made it to Italia, where Lewis attempted to hire ships to carry them the rest of the way to the Holy Land. There were not enough vessels available for their force, so Lewis abandoned most of the army so that he and the rest of the nobles could travel by sea to Outremer, or the Crusader territory in the Middle East. Those not so fortunate, mostly poor foot soldiers, and those of non-noble birth, were left to make the rest of the journey overland. Most were killed or captured by Turkish soldiers. Eleanor, King Louis VII, and the rest of the nobles arrived at Antioch and were welcomed by her uncle Raymond, the ruler of the city. She was delighted to finally arrive in Antioch and see him again. The two were roughly the same age and had been childhood companions. Raymond and Eleanor began to spend significant time in each other's company, as he was far more interesting and handsome than Louis VII. This led to a swirl of rumors among the knights that the two were having an affair. There's some debate over whether or not this was true, as most of the evidence for it is interpreted in light of the fact that Eleanor and Louis divorced in 1152. Yet, it is inarguable that marital tension rose between the two while in Antioch. Raymond argued that attempting to recapture Edessa was the best strategic objective of the Second Crusade, and Eleanor agreed. But Louis believed that reaching Jerusalem was the most important goal and demanded that his wife accompany him. Louis decided to march his army out of Antioch and make his way to Jerusalem. Eleanor was furious at Louis' refusal to help Raymond, and stated that she would not be accompanying him to Jerusalem. She intended that she and her troops from Aquitaine stay in Antioch and help Raymond attack Nur al-Din, the Turkic leader of Aleppo and Mosul. She also threatened Louis with divorce. Once they returned to Europe, she not only would separate from him, but she would take back all of her lands that came with their marriage. Eleanor claimed that their marriage had never been valid in the eyes of God. According to consanguinity laws, or laws that dictated how closely you could be related in order to marry, their marriage was invalid as they were distant cousins and their union was prohibited by the church, never mind her supposed relations with her uncle. Louis responded by doing what any possessive husband would do, by concocting a harebrained scheme to restore his crumbling marriage. He kidnapped Eleanor in the middle of the night and set sail for Acre coastal outpost on the Mediterranean held by crusaders, and kept her close by for the rest of their time in the Holy Land. Louis and Eleanor remained within Outremer until Easter 1149. The two had irreconcilable differences and returned to Europe in separate ships. Eleanor reached Palermo, Sicily, where she received shelter and waited for word from Louis. He made land in Calabria. 
It was at this time that Eleanor learned of the gruesome death of her uncle Raymond. He was killed in a battle against Nur ad-Din, in which he was captured and beheaded, with his head delivered to the Caliph of Baghdad. Raymond's death cemented Eleanor's frustration with her husband. The estranged couple traveled to see Pope Eugenius III to sort out their royal conflict. Eleanor hoped that the Pope would grant an annulment of her marriage. Eugenius attempted to reconcile the couple. The Pope did his best as a couple's therapist. He was not a subtle one, though, and commanded that the two sleep in the same bed. Shortly after this, Eleanor became pregnant, although there was some speculation that she had become great with child in Antioch, possibly by Raymond. For the most part, this question of paternity was not pursued, although both Louis and Eleanor were disappointed that the second child was once again a girl. The couple made their way back to France, but was unable to save their marriage. On March 11, 1152, the marriage was dissolved on the grounds of consanguinity. This principle was a useful medieval escape clause for marriage, since most European nobles at this time had some degree of relation, since aristocrats married within each other's class. With her annulment, she regained possession of Aquitaine and Poitou, making suitors once again line up outside her door. Eleanor spent little time mourning her marriage to Louis. She went on to marry Henry of Anjou in 1152 before the annulment was even finalized. Eleanor was 30 at the time, and he 18, making her something of a medieval cougar. Though he wasn't handsome in the traditional sense, Henry was the opposite of Eleanor's old husband. He was stocky and powerful. He was an avid hunter, intellectual, and loved a scholarly debate. Unfortunately, he also had a fierce temper, which came into full bloom in later decades when he and Eleanor ran into fierce conflict. In 1154, he became Henry II of England after securing support from the English lords. She became the Queen of England and provided a royal line to her new husband, having eight children in 15 years. Five of these children were sons, most notably Richard the Lionheart, arguably the most famous crusader in history, and Eleanor's favorite son. Now, Eleanor is Queen of England and Richard the Lionheart, a famous king of England, it should be noted, were much more French than they were English. English kings really didn't speak English until about the 1300s. They spoke French as their first language, as did Richard the Lionheart. This goes back to the Norman conquest of England in 1066. The Normans were Viking by background, but French by culture, and introduced a lot of French customs to England, and there was definitely a French strain in English royalty for hundreds of years after the conquest, and this was still holding on definitely to Eleanor's time. So when we hear that she's from Aquitaine, has French culture, rules England, that explains a little bit of this cultural mishmash having to do with the Norman conquest of England. Anyway, back to Eleanor and Henry. In his early years as king, Henry governed England on horseback, like Eleanor's father, William X. So Eleanor administered his lands in France during his long absences. She also supported him during feuds between the nobles and clergy. However, after the birth of her last son, John, in 1167, and rumors of Henry's affair with Rosamund Clifford began to surface, their marriage began to decline. In 1168, she left for Poitou, her famed court, and remained there for five years. Eleanor reformed the court and filled it with her characteristic bon vivant lifestyle. She raised it to a level not seen before or since in the High Middle Ages. And when we think of the High Middle Ages, we can really credit Eleanor with a lot of this. 
She filled her court with troubadours that sung tales of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, evoking images of chivalry and courtly love. Her court became famous for tournaments and culture. It was filled with famed poets, such as Chrétien de Troyes, known for his Arthurian literature. She was a patron of literature, and a lot of Arthurian legend comes from this time in the Middle Ages, so again, we can credit Eleanor. Legend has it that Eleanor, her daughter Marie, and other noble women sat and listened to quarrels of lovers and acted as a jury to the questions surrounding issues of romantic love. They were like a legal court, but for romantic issues. The most famous question was whether or not true love existed in marriage, an issue that Eleanor most likely would have replied in the negative due to her past experience. It was at this course that the concept developed of a woman as an object of chivalry, who was to be a silent, passive goddess that one approached with reverence. It was a myth that developed into the modern-day conception of what a medieval woman was like, which sadly, all too many people believe to be true today. While there, Eleanor started to plot against Henry to ensure that the lords of her lands in Aquitaine and Poitou remained loyal to her and not her husband. Royal marriage should not mean that all possessions dissolved into common ownership as they do today, nor is there an assumption that they were automatically owned by the king. Instead, it was a perpetual power struggle between the two sides. Eleanor clearly knew how to play this game. When Henry became enormously unpopular in England for allowing his magnates to hack Thomas Becket to death, the saint, she and her eldest son plotted a revolt against him to get back Aquitaine. The plot failed, and Eleanor sought refuge with her uncle by escaping to Paris, dressed as a nobleman. Henry's men intercepted her and imprisoned her in Touraine. Over the next 15 years, she remained his prisoner in Winchester until his death in 1189. Having survived another unfortunate marriage, Eleanor prepared for the next stage of her life as a powerful monarch. She watched her son Richard, later known as the Lionheart, be crowned king in Westminster Abbey when she was 67. Richard was less interested in ruling than he was crusading and quickly set sail for the Holy Land, and he was part of the King's Crusade, or the Third Crusade, famously battling Saladin. He left Eleanor in charge as his regent. She had to contend with her son John, who campaigned to seize his brother's title as their father's true heir, a drama that transformed into the backdrop of the Robin Hood legend. And she had to contend with French King Philip II, who laid siege to Richard's European possessions. The two allied against the elderly queen, whom they expected to be toppled easily, but she was more than a match for their forces. Eleanor united barons and commoners against them and defended against their attacks in Flanders. When Richard was captured and held ransom, she drained the church coffers and raised taxes to obtain the amount of 100,000 marks for his release. Richard died in 1199 in his mother's arms after being shot by a crossbow bolt during an assault on a garrison in Chalie. She feared the aftermath of her son's death, knowing a succession battle would immediately break out. Against her better judgment, she designated John as successor, but kept control over Aquitaine and Poitou to keep him in check. Despite being in her 70s, she traveled extensively throughout Normandy to ensure loyalty to John by issuing charters that released his subjects of feudal obligations. Now in her 80s, Eleanor kept up a frenetic pace, arranging royal marriages to secure power even overseeing Miobu's defense in the face of a siege by her nemesis and great-nephew, John. However, he acquired bits and pieces of Normandy throughout his rule, and by 1204, all of it was lost. The same year, Eleanor retreated to the nunnery 
of Fontevrault, where she died. Eleanor lived until 82, an extraordinarily long lifespan in the Middle Ages. Her political ambition and independent spirit brought her into the same conflict in the court of England as it had in France. She had troubles in her marriage to Henry because of rumors of numerous affairs, and also because of her latter support of her son's attempts to overthrow him by providing him with troops and money. However, despite the conflicts, she managed to reform his court. History, for the most part, I'd say, hasn't looked upon Eleanor as kindly as she deserves. Most contemporary accounts of her life were written by chroniclers of the Crusades, who found her behavior to be outlandish. But in her later life, she demonstrated political brilliance by keeping England intact when her son Richard spent years in foreign lands and guarded the interests of her son John on the European continent. Her offspring became kings, queens, archbishops, and emperors. While her contributions to the Second Crusade were questionable from a military standpoint, her influence on today's concept of medieval manners, court life, and the greatest aspects of medieval life as we know it are beyond question. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Well, that's all we're going to look at in this episode today. We looked at these three female figures who are powerful because they ruled as empresses, queens, or monarchs, but they had clear political power. In the next episode, we're going to look at female figures who managed to exert power, but in different ways, whether soft power as a religious figure or as a regent who ruled through others. Specifically, we'll look at Catherine of Siena, the Catholic mystic who even today is revered by Catholics. We'll look at Queen Isabella of Castile and Leon, Catholic monarch who ruled with her husband Ferdinand, then Elizabeth of Tudor. Finally, Qusem Sultan. She was a harem slave who came to basically control the Ottoman Empire by ruling through her weak-willed sons and grandson. All right, well, that was the episode for today. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. First of all, I'd like to thank the Knowlton's Rangers, and especially our two spy masters, Carl from Norway, and Baron Freza de Reveo in Napoli, and I'll explain what the Knowlton's Rangers are in a second. If you want to support the show and help me keep producing this content, there are four easy ways for you to do it. One, Subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to do that, you can go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com and there you'll find instructions. Two, join our Facebook group, which you can find if you just search for History Unplugged. And please like and share posts that I put up about new episodes. Three, submit a question to me so that I can answer it on air. You can email me at info at historyonthenet.com or leave a voicemail. And again, go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com and you'll find instructions. Lastly, and I think this one is the best, is to become one of the Knowlton's Rangers. 
The Knowlton's Rangers were an elite reconnaissance and espionage detachment of the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War, but it's also the name of the History Unplugged membership program. Learn how to join by going to patreon.com unplugged. So here's what you get if you become one of the Knowlton's Rangers. If you join at the level of Scout, you can get early access to new podcast episodes, along with enjoying absolutely every single episode of the History Unplugged podcast ad-free. All 270 and counting episodes. If you join at the level of Intelligence Officer, you can also get access to premium episodes, like a multi-part series on the life of Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat soldier in World War II, or the 10-part series Ottoman Lives, a series that looks at the cast of characters that made up the Ottoman Empire, such as the Sultan, the Eunuch, the Harem Servant Girl, and the Soldier. And finally, if you join at the level of Spymaster, you get all the same stuff as the scouts and intelligence officers, but you also get a shout-out to you and or your business at the end of each episode, a three-pack of hardcover history books, plus you'll be put at the very front of the line for me to answer your question about history, and I can guarantee I will dedicate an episode that's about an hour long or so to your question. Sign up at patreon.com unplugged. Again, that's patreon.com unplugged. Anyway, those are the ways you can help out the show. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks for listening to the History Unplugged podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get your daily dose of all things history-related from ancient Greece to the Cold War. We'll see you next time at the History Unplugged podcast. Are you struggling to lose weight and keep it off? Tired of wasting time and money on starvation diets that lead to more frustration and stress? If there was a weight loss solution that could actually work for you, would you try it? Then head to golo.com. I'm Steve. I lost 138 pounds in nine months on Golo. I'm Amber. I've lost 128 pounds with Golo. If you're ready to take back control of your life, head to golo.com now and see how Golo can work for you. That's golo.com. My sleep is way better. My inflammation has gone way down. Golo saved my life. I was way overweight. That's what sent me down the path. I wanted to make sure and live for my kid. I have literally tried everything. I was on the verge of getting gastric bypass surgery, and I saw the Golo commercial, and it was the last thing I tried because it worked. Join over 2 million people who found a better way to lose weight with Golo. Your healthier and happier life begins at Golo.com. That's G-O-L-O.com. Again, G-O-L-O.com. The history of the popes of Rome and Christianity reaches into nearly every aspect of history. In the History of the Papacy podcast, we step over the rope. We dive in to discover more about the people, events, and background that define the influence of the popes of Rome and church, not only on the West, but the world. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search for History of the Papacy on your favorite podcast platform.